So that's my hope. My hope is what I am clinging on to with everything that I have, that everything we read and have learned is real and true and it's being tested. This is real. We have an Ashama and there's more to this world. There's more to what we see and that's my choice. That's my hope. That's the belief. Hello, I'm Tanya. Welcome back to another episode of Human and Holy, a podcast where we discuss spiritual ideas in human terms. Today's episode is sponsored by Chaya and Shmuley Levitin in honor of the Human and Holy podcast for spreading the love and light of Hasidus. Thank you so much for the kindest dedication and for supporting us in our work. Today's episode is also dedicated in honor of Itti Ainsworth, Hannah's mother, on the occasion of her birthday. Hannah says, happy birthday to the greatest mother a person could ask for. Your warmth and love have forever changed the world. I love you. May yours and Taz Neshamais continue to go to the highest places and demand for Mashiach so we can be together again forever. Love Hannah and her six brothers. Hannah's mother's name is Itta Bas Miriam. If you'd like to do something special in her honor, that would be a beautiful thing. I have some super exciting news for the podcast, and that is that we are officially registered as a nonprofit, which just, uh, it feels so right, and I'm really excited. And that means that all donations and all sponsorships, dedications, etc. are now tax deductible. So if you would like to sponsor an episode, now is your time. So if you would like to sponsor an episode, please reach out to us at humanandholy at gmail.com. We have some dedication opportunities coming up. So birthday, yard site, just, you know, support the work. Reach out to us at humanandholy at gmail.com. Today's episode is unlike any we've ever done, in my view, just because this is a really current and raw account of what it looks like to look grief in the eye. In the past year of her life, Hannah Wasserman has experienced unimaginable tragedy when she lost both of her parents overnight in the Surfside building collapse in Florida. Today, Hannah shares with us what it looks like to welcome grief as your divine mission, what it looks like to hold tightly to God as you are plunged into the depths of human suffering. What does it look like for others to witness those who are grieving without looking away? And how can we learn to embrace the immense godliness in a fellow human's grief? My name is Hana. How could I introduce myself? I am a mother of my beautiful children. I'm a wife to Ezzy Wasserman, and I am an interior designer by profession, and I am the daughter of Tzvi and Itti Ainsworth, which is why I'm here tonight. Can you share why you are 
opening up on this podcast why you're here to share tonight. Why am I here tonight? I guess I'm here to let myself be a little bit more witnessed in my grief and in what I've been living through for the last nine plus months. Wow. Yeah. On June 24th, 2021, my parents were taken from this world when their building collapsed in the middle of the night. That experience has left myself and my brothers completely wounded and broken and lost. And I have spent every day since then suffering and heartbroken. And a lot of it has been really isolating and lonely. And so me speaking tonight and sharing some of what I feel and what I experience is my way of reaching out to the world a little bit and finding some connection. Wow. It's really an honor to have you here to be able to speak with you. It's something that we often speak about how to approach our own grief, but there's little said about how to approach other people's grief and how to just like, how do we navigate that as Jews? What do we say to people who are grieving? How do we interact with them? What are they experiencing? Even if someone has experienced their own grief, every person's grief is different. But I think that what you are going to share with us will teach us something about how we interact with other people. So thank I you. I hope. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Of course. All right. So you mentioned a little bit about, I don't even know how to say this like in a, I'm just going to be honest. It's so hard for me to even ask a question about this. I feel like I'm trespassing. What has your experience been in these last nine plus months since you lost your parents so suddenly and tragically? It's been so many things. I'm looking at a picture of my mother now as I'm talking. I'm like, help me. What has it been like? I mean, it's been really quiet in my life, really a lot of emptiness, like a lot of space. There's just a lot of space in my life where there used to be love and connection and life. My parents were very involved parents and very loving and very engaged in every one of their kids' lives. And we all mattered a tremendous amount to them. And for me, they represented so much for me. And my relationship with them were the most important, some of the most important relationships to me in my life. And not having them in my life in a physical way, in a way that I know has been, I don't have a word, I'm just, parts of me were taken with them. You know, those parts of myself with them in this world before June 24th are with them now. And it's like a lost child. My inner child is really, really lost. And I'm grateful that I have a husband, children who, thank God, are healthy and with me in my life, in this life. And they bring me so much joy. And I'm also 
totally lost and broken. And I want to have my parents in my life experiencing our love, our laughter, birthdays. It's hard to be so broken. Something that you said that really jumped out at me was that so much of who you are has been taken with your parents. And that emptiness, like that loss of them in your life, also inevitably results in a feeling of loneliness because you are forever changed. Like you're a different Hana now. And that's also so painful to mourn your own life as well. Yeah. I think part of the brokenness is slowly putting myself back together. So it's never going to be what was, because how could it? And that's also part of the pain. It's a very permanent thing. It's hard, really, really hard. I'm hiding from a world I'm scared of because I'm just, I'm out there. I'm, a, I'm an exposed, broken heart and nobody knows what to do with that. I wouldn't mm. know what to do with that. I just didn't have a choice. That's just what happened. And so the world is a really scary place for me because I am open and broken and it's hurtful and it's painful when you feel like people are avoiding you or people want things to feel better and feel lighter and feel different. And I don't know how to do that for them. The only thing I can offer is is what is happening right now. And so I stay away. But then staying away is its own suffering because I've lost connection with my parents. And then I've lost even more connection because I'm cutting myself off from the world because I'm scared. What are you afraid of? I'm afraid of being hurt. I'm afraid of being misunderstood. I'm afraid of being judged. I'm afraid of being told to keep myself busy. Mm. And I would feel better if I started working or if I distracted myself or if I did less of what I'm doing. Mm. And that feels scary and it feels isolating because what I'm doing is my way of surviving the days. Waking up every morning, my first thought is they're not here with me in this world anymore. They're somewhere else. And then my day goes from there. That's my starting point. So I'm afraid of being even more hurt. I mean, we're not really equipped because death is a tremendously scary thing. I went through 34 years of my life avoiding the word death. Mm. And it found me and my brothers anyways. And we're so afraid of it, but it's part of the world, like birth is part of the world. And then when death happens, we're not really, the only tools we have is fear. And when you're afraid of something, you avoid it. Mm. So I'm avoiding being hurt and people are avoiding me because I am walking mortality. I'm reminding them that people suffer. I'm reminding them that people die. And I'm reminding them that we lose people we love. And nobody wants to live with that reality. It's scary. I'm in it and it's a terrifying place to be. So it's like we're both, we're all afraid. Wow. That was so insightful. <laughs> that concept, that idea that people think that if they distance themselves from your experience, then maybe they can 
pretend that death and suffering doesn't exist. Well, I, I yeah, I, I probably did the same thing. It's easier to look away and then you have no choice. It's right in front of your face. What would a world be like? What would suffering be like with no fear? Mm. It would be pretty radical. Mm, yeah. That's such an interesting question. What would suffering be, I guess, with trust instead of fear? Right. I mean, because also people are scared they're going to say the wrong thing, so they Mm. don't reach out. People are scared they said the wrong thing. So much of the miscommunication of the isolation of the loneliness is, is based out of fear. People are scared of the silence. They don't know what to do for me or for anybody that's suffering or going through grief and loss. There's so much fear. You don't want to cause them more pain. They're scared they're going to cause more pain. So, yeah, what can we replace with the fear? Mm. Trust. Have you interacted with anyone who was able to really look the suffering, the pain, the tragedy in the eye and just be there with you? So there has been people in my life that are able to meet me and fight the urge to give me words or give me ideas or hope and just to be with me. And what I would say has been the closest, like has been a source of connection for me is when somebody is able to just either sit and be silent. Mm. I think great loss is met with silence because there's no words to offer a bleeding heart. There's no way of making it stop because that's just what it is. That's what's happening. It's been a comfort when somebody is silent and sitting with me. And it's also been a comfort when someone has reflected back my pain. Mm. So has told me this is the greatest loss. I don't know how you're going to do it. I don't think there's ever answers when it comes to tragedies or losing people you love. It's just the greatest loss when it happens and every day after. It will always be that. And there are no answers that will take away that loss, that will bring them back. And so for me, it's been, I am doing exactly what, it's almost like this is my service to Hashem now. Like in my human life, in my human experience, I am having, like I'm surrendering myself to his plan, his unfolding. And there's no, like I feel abandoned by him in so many ways. So I just feel like he forgot about me. Like he forgot about our family. Like this doesn't make any sense. How can this be? And then I'm also knowing, knowing very, very deeply that there is no way for me to get through this without him. Like I don't have the human capabilities to get through it. I have to turn to him and say, you need to help me. You need to find a way to get me through this and get my family through this. So it's also like these two opposite feelings towards him. It's so complicated. It used to be so simple. Such an interesting dichotomy that you're 
expressing, like simultaneously feeling abandoned and also carried. This is something that is so human to at once be experiencing something that makes us feel completely abandoned. And on the other hand, to know that God is carrying us. Like, it's, to me, it's like such a, I'm totally matching your energy. It's very interesting. Like, I'm really (laughs) feeling your experience. No, really. Like, I don't, it's so painful. And I'm just like, this is what it means as your soul to be in a body, to experience such tremendous concealment, to feel so alone and empty. And yet to also have this part of us that feels connected and full within the experience of abandonment and suffering. It's like, how do those two things coexist? But they do. I think also in the belief in Hashem and in the belief that a soul lives on and there's another realm in that belief, there's Mm. hope. Mm. So without the belief, there's no hope. And without hope, there's no life. A life without hope is the walking dead. And I've done that. I've been doing that for a very long time. And it's not a life. Hopelessness drains the life force because where's the purpose? And so in the abandonment and in feeling like I was forgotten in the bottom of a dark pit, finding the belief and saying, okay, so there's a God and there's a God who runs the world in a way that I will never, ever understand. I will never agree with this. I will never see how this needed to happen. But there is a God who is unfolding the world and our lives. And if I believe in that, and if I believe in other realms, and I believe in our neshamas, then I believe that my parents are not here physically, but they are eternal. So that's my hope. My hope is what I am clinging on to with everything that I have, that everything we read and have learned is real and true, and it's being tested. Mm-hmm. It's really easy to accept when Everybody we love is in this world with us, alive and breathing and with us. Then, yes, I can accept everything. And then you take them away in this crushing, traumatic way. And I'm standing in the middle of my life, and my life is a wreckage, and I'm suffering. And what's my choice? And so, okay, okay. So, this is real. This is real. We have an ashama, and there's more to this world and there's meaning and my parents are with me and they're with my brothers and they're with their grandchildren and they will be here forever and one day my day will come like everybody else and I'm going to go and I will there is more there is more to what we see and that's my choice that's my hope that's the belief Recently, my husband actually sent me a podcast that he's been listening to by Chase Taub, where he's reading 
he has like a program, 30 letters from the Rebbe for 30 days. And every day he reads a different letter of the Rebbe. And one of the letters was the Rebbe's response to tragedy. And it was basically the Rebbe started the letter and he quoted the Alta Rebbe. He quoted the Tzemach Tzedek and he quoted the Mitla Rebbe. And what he was basically quoting was each one of them addressing writing a letter to people who have gone through tragedy and talking about the way the spiritual attributes come into this world and evolve and develop and change forms and how there's like a structure in that. And the structure is chesed, din, and rachamim. It's kindness, judgment, and compassion. And basically talking about how when a person has a harsh judgment and has hardship and has struggle and has loss, that Hashem's compassion is there and is coming for them. I'm nowhere near internalizing it, but it's definitely something that I'm holding on to. And I'm holding on to Hashem helping me get through this time in my life, what struck me was when the Rebbe was quoting the Mitla Rebbe in the letter and he said the words, I seek to comfort your souls after they were affected by the hand of Hashem. You should not be disheartened as Hashem will certainly arouse his great kindness and compassion upon you. So to me in hearing that, and they say that a Rebbe's words are everlasting, words that they said 50, 70 years ago are words that apply and live today. And so to me, those words are saying there's comfort when you lose people that you love. At least for me, I basically live in this never-ending cycle of regret, and I should have done this, and I could have done this, and why didn't I tell her this, and why didn't I tell him that? And it's never-ending, and it's so painful. And so to read the words that your soul was struck by the hand of God, to me, there's comfort and a reminder that this is out of your control and this is from Hashem. This is from Hashem. This is the hand of Hashem. Mm. And to me, the compassion is that when I feel abandoned, which I do, and I feel like how on earth can you do something like this, he will show me. He will help me out. And so I think that's an important difference when you hear like everything happens for a reason. This is for the best. It's hugely painful to hear that something like this could be for the best. It's it's so painful. But I think in taking it in a different way, in taking it in a way where don't be disheartened, don't turn away from Hashem. Like mm. He will be there for you. He will show up for you. That could be something. And it might not be something for everybody who's grieving, and it might not be something even for my brothers, but for me, it was speaking to my own experience because in my feelings of abandonment from Hashem, I also only found hope in turning to Him. So when I heard this letter from the Rebbe, that's what I held on to. Okay, so don't be disheartened. Like He didn't forget about you. He didn't forget about your family. Just hold on to the belief. That's really powerful. That reminder that suffering is not God forgetting about us, but it's actually like a 
pointed thing that he did that we can never understand and that we're not meant to understand and that we do a disservice to God when we try to understand it. And Hannah, the fact that you are sharing that he will show me compassion, I'm interested to know, is there a hesitance in you in sharing words of hope from your experience in the fear that people will interpret it as a way of minimizing your grief and like, oh, look, she's able to find hope. She's able to find God's compassion. She's doing better. Right. Those words, doing better. (laughs) It's horrifying. It's like, I want them removed from the dictionary. Just, I want them removed. (laughs) Just get rid of them. Yes. I so get that. Oh my gosh. There is. There's resistance to even bringing up that letter from the Rebbe. There's even resistance in that because how are people going to interpret that? Are they going to think, oh, you see, this happens for a reason and where Mm. there's a harsh judgment, Hashem is going to show compassion and Mm. good things are coming. And no, 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 no. Listen to what I'm saying to you. I'm saying that when Hashem takes his hand and brings down a judgment, you can either choose to believe that he'll be there to help you get out or not. That's what I'm holding on to. That's what I'm saying. And I think maybe that's what the Rebbe is saying. I mean, everything is layered. Nothing is ever one thing. And so don't be disheartened. God, Hashem, like there is something beyond what we see. Mm. What I see now is destruction and I see absence and I feel pain. And so the hope is believing that there's connection and that there's like for me right now, the spiritual world is just as important as the physical world. That's just the way that it is because two, my dear sweet parents are on the other side. They're there. So that's my connection to them. So the spiritual world is real and it's palpable and it is what we have been taught. And so in reading that letter from the Rebbe, that's what I'm taking away that Hashem is, I'm not forgotten even though my human lived experience every single day feels like that, because why would he choose this? Why? I don't know. And I don't think anything, any answer, any words would be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. No, it's not supposed to. So yeah, there is a little bit of resistance. So what's been so hard is that people don't see how hard it is. People don't know my suffering. And people will never know because it didn't happen to them. It happened to me and it happened to my brothers and it wasn't random and it was chosen for us and it was chosen for me and me alone is going to be the only one to experience it and know it. Mm. And part of knowing it is knowing that maybe things I say will get misinterpreted and maybe people won't understand me, but it doesn't lessen what I'm living. I know my life. I know what I'm living. And I know what I'm going through. And it's okay for me to know that and to also say, I found comfort in a letter from the Rebbe. And if that in some person's opinion and experience diminishes my own, that's their work, not mine. Connected to what you're sharing, that line that you brought out, that you know what you're experiencing and God knows what you're experiencing because he gave it to you. And I'm actually so glad I asked the question because you pinpoint it, that in the same phrase, it's like, this judgment is harsh and painful and God is with me. And God being with me doesn't mean that the grief goes away 
or that it's less, but just that he's with me. And I think that's really important for people to hear. Anyone who is not experiencing tremendous grief in their life, if we look around us at people who are, to be able to know that these ideas are so powerful and true and do not take away human grief. And people who are experiencing human grief and believe in God experience it as an excruciating pain. I wasn't expecting to bring in that letter, but I'm going to take it as a sign that it was supposed to be said and that I'm going to take his words to heart that don't be disheartened because that's so much of my experience. And actually, my I think I wrote it down too because my therapist pointed out, I talked to my therapist a lot, so she's very insightful, that the Rebbe's new capital, she thought about me in reading those first few lines. It's, I shall raise my eyes to the mountains. From where will my help come? My help is from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Mm. So I think that's the theme of, I think it's the theme of our Jewish heritage and our Jewish life. I mean, it's like we suffer and we turn to God. Maker of heaven and earth. Maker of heaven and earth. That's like sums up the Jewish experience. He could have made our human experience so synthesized with the spiritual reality and he chose not to. Mm -hmm. I feel like that tells us something about... I agree with that. And I think what could you replace in terms of suffering? What would it look like if fear was replaced by trust? And so mm. imagine if fear was replaced with trust in Hashem, that like he created the world where grief and suffering is real. And imagine you approached it as the way you would approach a good thing Hashem brings. Like this is from Hashem. This person is experiencing something from Hashem. Like I am going to sit with this person and sit with this pain because this pain has Hashem in it just like happiness has Hashem in it. Like Hashem is in everything. So I can sit with Hashem mm. at a wedding, at a birth, wow. and in grief, and in Shiva, and in death. I can sit. I can sit here. I can be with them. I can be with them. The worst that's going to happen is that it's going to be quiet. Like if you don't know what to say, just stay quiet. Hand them a glass of water and just sit. Sit with Hashem, sit with the people that are experiencing Him in a very, very, very concealed way. Wow. Also, I'm thinking that you mentioned a few times how the most powerful thing that you've experienced was people meeting you with silence. And it's like, when you stand before God in that way, just shut your mouth. I'm like, that's what I'm thinking, that it's like you're saying, how can you look away when I'm experiencing God in this way? And it's like, just witness my experience, just witness my interaction with God to recognize that they actually have such a powerful opportunity to interact with someone holy. And like, human grief is a holy experience. Okay, so Hana, what advice would you give to anyone listening on how they can better show up for those in their lives that are grieving? What can they do that may help? Obviously, everyone has individual circumstances, but 
on the whole, what would be your thoughts on how we can interact better with those who are grieving? Okay. So I gave this question a lot of thought because I know that it's a really important question because in answering this question, I'm hoping to help bridge the gap between those who want to do something but don't know how and don't know what and between the person who wants to receive and feels isolated in their life and feels alone to better receive from others. So first of all, I would say when you're approaching somebody in grief and somebody who getting out of bed and doing the daily physical tasks leaves them feeling winded, their starting point is below average. So just getting up and living another day without people they love and with that loss is an exhausting task. So I would say when you're approaching somebody in grief and somebody who lost, approach them and speak to them and give to them with zero expectation of a response, of an answer that you like, of feeling comfortable, of feeling understood. It's just about giving to them. So if you're going to call them and they're going to miss your call, like let it be a missed call. If you're going to text, I would say refrain from asking questions like, how's your day? How are you doing? How are you feeling? Because sometimes having to answer that question feels like a lot. And sometimes leaving it unanswered feels like you're letting the person down. So when you reaching out and asking a question like, I want to know how you're feeling, could leave the person in grief feeling more burdened. So I would say what I have found more of a comfort is when people say, I love you. I'm here for you. I left something at your door. I want to see you next week, Tuesday. I'm going to bring coffee. Like, Give me statements. If next week, Tuesday doesn't work and I end up not being able to make it, that's okay too. But just when somebody's drowning, they just need a life raft. They just need to be pulled in one tug at a time. So I think in some way, I guess when you're reaching out to them, Instead of sending strength, try and really almost give that feeling of like, I want to take care of you. I want to be there for you. Like, and in the words, there's also sometimes there are actions that you can do. Like, you can just leave flowers at the door. You can leave a coffee at the door. You can leave a note because notes don't need to have a response. Or again, you can send a WhatsApp or a text just saying a statement. I love you. And it, it definitely feels better than I'm thinking about you. I'm thinking about you there's a sense of emptiness to that sentiment. To me personally, it feels a little empty. So what would feel more thoughtful would be there's flowers at the door or I saw this and I thought about you and I got it for you. Just these small little bids that like, I don't know your experience and I can't imagine your experience and I'm thinking about you. So here's something to show that I've been thinking about you, that you've been on my mind, that in your loneliness, you're not completely alone. I think that's important. I love how you said that, to give without expectation of any response and also to kind of give a tangible way to show that you're thinking of the person. Because like, I'm thinking of you. Is someone really thinking of you the whole day? But if someone brought you flowers, they thought of you to drive to the store, to buy the flowers, then to deliver them. So they thought of you for that time. And it's a tangible representation of that. Right. I'm thinking about you feels very vague. It's just this lofty abstract. I'm thinking about you. Yeah. For the three seconds that you texted me or like this morning, when were you thinking right. about me? Yeah. And then it's also like, I don't know. There's no, I don't know. What do I do with that? Do I respond? Thank you. Do I respond? Okay. 
it becomes more work for me. Do I respond? Do I connect? When there's no expectation, if they don't answer and if they don't respond and if they're not giving, if they're not mirroring back to you, you can still give because there's no expectation as opposed to giving and then not receiving and then feeling like, I don't know if I'm overstepping, they don't want me around. And then you'll pull yourself back. And then instead of connection, there's a separation between the ones that lost and the ones that want to help or want to be there. And it's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to take yourself out of it and to be like, I don't have access to that type of pain, thank God. And I don't know what she's going through. So I'm going to continue to try if that's what I want. If I want to really show up, like show up completely for that other person and completely take yourself out of it. Because I think the expectation, it puts a burden also on the person grieving because there is social etiquette. It existed before the loss. So it's a hard transition because there's all these rules, right? And they're very unspoken that kind of come with communication and phone calls and texting and meeting. And then death happens and none of those exist because there's no room for it. Because just breathing in and out is my avida for the day. I just need to breathe in and breathe out. And so social etiquette doesn't exist in this realm, but fortunate for other people. But unfortunately for me, I live in a world with other people who are in that social etiquette. So they're confused, I'm lost, and there's this such a big gap. It just becomes like we're all standing on the same ground. My parents were killed. And then the ground around me cracks and I move away from the rest of the world and the rest of the world is on the standing ground of before and I'm on the standing ground of after. And of course, my ground is different and it's cracked away and I'm separate. So it's how do I create a bridge where those can come to me and I can feel safe to go to them? And I think the steps of creating that bridge is coming towards the sad and the broken, with no expectation, with your fear anyways, and just, I love you. I'm here for you. I brought this for you. And just to continue. It's hard to continue when you don't receive back. So just to keep trying. Wow. The way you described the ground cracking open and like totally shifting your ground and trying to find that bridge That was very powerful. I'd love to know, obviously you can only speak to your perspective, but how can someone differentiate between when someone who is grieving wants their space and doesn't want to be messaged every day or once a week or whatever it is, every person is different. Or even if like the grief has made them reevaluate this friendship and they don't want to be connecting to this person and it's bothering them, this person is constantly reaching out. So how can someone differentiate between the silence and the lack of reciprocation as a disinterest in connecting with this person or just as simply an inability to reach out again, but desperately needing that connection to continue despite the lack of reciprocation? That's a good question. I mean, my first thought to answer that is that I think time at the beginning, it's hard to respond to anything, to anyone at any time. It's just a fog, like a literal thick fog. I don't remember how I got through my life from June 24th to December or Jan. It feels like my body was just crowd surfing and I was just being literally lifted and taken from one place to another. Like I don't know how I got through those six months. 
And even now it's so hard. Like I do, I go on and off the grid of being available and being unavailable. So I would say is that there are people that reach out and if it's three, four days where I haven't read the message, then they have an understanding that like Hannah's, she's not available right now or she's off the grid. That's what I'm saying time. And there are times where I am more receptive and I am calling or I am, and, and then there are times where I can't. So I would say that it's a very up and down and you can kind of learn from the person based on when they're tapping in and when they're tapping out. In terms of friendships shifting and not wanting all relationships shift with children, with siblings, with spouses, with in-laws, with friends, with cousins, every relationship has shifted because I'm not who I was. So the person everybody was in relationship with is no longer here. They're in relationship with a new person. So a lot of it is time and a lot of it is patience because everybody grieves differently. Everybody's going to move at a different pace in terms of like, there are some people who right when it happened, I was very responsive to and calling and then I dipped out and I was more open to somebody else because everybody's a different resource. And Sometimes I'm more angry or more sad, or sometimes I feel more inspired, less inspired. So I have a cousin in my life who says people are mixed resources. So it's almost like I myself have to learn a whole new way to be in relationship with people in my life. And it's hard for me. I do know on some level that it it is hard for the people in my life. And I don't have space for it right now, but I know and I can see the people that are still trying, even though they're getting so little from me. It's being noticed and it's being noted. And there is a safety like, oh, that person is somebody that I can depend on, which there is a safety in that. So even though I'm not being responsive, I see the effort. I guess my answer is time. A lot of things this this takes and it's still, I'm still, I think it's time. That's a good answer. Is there anything else you want to add, Hannah, before we close? So another when the question was asked, I had two thoughts about how to practically show up for somebody. For my personal experience, when speaking to somebody in grief, I think it's important to not ask a lot of questions because we don't have any answers. I'm holding the biggest question of all, like, why did this happen? That's my whole reality. I, I live within that question. So it's a very hard thing when you see somebody and how are you? Have you started working again? How are the kids? It doesn't feel like you're interested in my well-being. My kids are struggling. I'm struggling. How could I be working? I'm barely making it through my day. So it tightens me. Those questions, that they tighten me. They don't open me up to real connection and to real conversation. I think maybe it's a way for them to try and connect. You ask questions to connect, but I think in a situation where you've lost, we don't have answers. We just want to be witnessed. We just want to be given time, space, permission to move through this, move with really, because it's going to be forever, move with this new reality. So I think refraining from that knee-jerk reaction of asking questions, because some people I've had, how are you doing? I'm not doing well. I'm really broken. I'm having a really hard time. Listen, you know, these things take time. I mean, first of all, I know more than anybody 
You don't need to school me on what the process is. I'm living it. And that's just like a small example. Like, I don't want to listen to, you know, I want to be listened to. So yeah, I would say as hard as it is, try to just be there, listen, not ask too many questions. It could feel very overwhelming. And we want to make the outside world less scary if possible, because it's really scary. So handle with care. Mm. Handle with care. Beautiful. I think that's really helpful, Hannah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for allowing us to witness you. Seriously, for stepping up to the microphone and sharing. Yeah, thank you. I think it takes a lot of courage to be able to seek out that connection on your own terms and to really allow anyone who's listening to be welcomed into your experience, to see you, to be able to show up differently for people in their own life and for people in your life, to be able to show up differently for you and to be able to witness you in your grief and, as we said, not to look away. We stand before a burning bush, the holy of holies, the most intimate experience of God. When a fellow Jew is grieving, we cannot look away. And yet, in the face of great pain, there is only silence. In the face of great courage, there is only silence. God does not ask us to answer, but simply to sit with another person in their suffering. Sometimes it's so painful to imagine that we cannot will the grief away, that we accidentally turn our gaze to distract ourselves from the immensity of another person's pain. This is the invitation. This is the invitation that I hear in Hannah's voice. If you know someone who is grieving, please, only turn your eyes to witness them. Not to gaze or wonder, but to witness them fully. To accept the process of the human experience. To acknowledge you stand before God. That when you see them, you stand before a burning bush. To ensure that they are not alone. Elokai zakinina betoratcha uvimitzotecha mechaberet nishmati tamidelecha mechaber Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find me on Instagram at humanandholy or via email at humanandholy at gmail.com. New episodes of the podcast come out every single Sunday morning. If you don't want to miss a single episode, then hit the subscribe button. If you enjoyed today's episode and could take a quick second to leave a rating or review, it means a lot to me and it helps other people find the podcast. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you have a wonderful day. 